0: Last week, we were in 6, 19 through 24. It's instructive because he's going to tie today's passage to last week's passage. So I just want to kind of briefly touch on that. If you're going to kind of boil that down, and you're probably wondering why I didn't do that last week, but if you're going to boil it down into just 10 or 15 seconds, he takes and looks at it, and he basically says this. You have two things competing for your affections. You have the things on earth and the things in heaven. Don't let the things on earth win over the things in heaven. Set your focus, your attention, your heart On the things of heaven, the things of eternal consequence, instead of the things here on earth that are temporary. They're passing and they're fleeting. And so there's this tension always in our heart to let our focus be taken away from what is eternal and to focus our minds on what is immediate, what is pressing, what is right here before me and clearly seen and evident and demonstrated. And so he builds this passage, 25 through 34, on the understanding and the correct assumption that we are in fact doing that. That we're focusing on heaven and not giving an inordinate amount of attention onto the cares and effect of today. And last week he related to money and this week he's gonna relate it and he's gonna talk about it in terms of anxiety, being anxious, being overly preoccupied with what's gonna happen next and how is all of this stuff going to pan out. Well, let me just start here. Some of us, some of you perhaps in this room, you struggle with anxiety to the point that what you need is medical care. So let me just say that. If you've struggled with anxiety for a long time and, and it's just not getting any better and you have never gone to see a doctor, maybe that's where you need to start. You need to go in, you need to go see a doctor, and you need to address this with him or with her. Listening to this passage and hearing this if you're still struggling with anxiety and that it's not getting better and you've talked and there's no sin in your life and all these other things are working out, it could be that what you need to do is to go in and speak to a doctor. So let me just go ahead and say that. But for most of us, you just need to learn to quit worrying, right? You just need to learn to quit worrying. So he tells us in no with no equivocation, starts in verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So the command that overrides the rest of this is do not be anxious. Now what creeps up in our minds is, okay, but what about this? And, 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 and God would respond and he would just say, calmly, gracefully, No. And so what do we do in that moment? We say, well, hold on, hold on a bit, God. And so we come over here and we begin to describe all the intricacies of our life and how incredibly difficult it is and all the stuff we're going through and why it's worthy of our anxiety and why it's worthy of us to be anxious. And God, still in the midst of this, hears us and he says, No. And so then from that, we say, okay, well, I hear you saying not to be anxious, but what I really think you mean is I just need to handle it on my own. And so we begin to really invent these rather creative ways and rather creative streams whereby we might handle our anxiety on our own. And so just kind of looking at this, humanly speaking, we do a number of different things. And so perhaps some of us, we turn to alcohol. And so we're just straddled and we're just overcome with grief and we just can't handle the anxiety. And so we begin to drink and we just want to be numb. We just want to not feel this thing anymore. I'm tell you, that's not a very good use of alcohol. That's not a very good way to handle our anxiety. Or maybe you take the approach of kind of indifference. Oh, I'm just going to be diffident about it. I'm just not going to let anxiety have any hold on me. I'm going to be completely indifferent, and whatever happens, happens. Well, that works for something. Or maybe you look at it and you say, oh, the way I'm going to handle anxiety and stress and pressure is I'm just going to exercise all the time, and I'm just going to do all of these things on my own. Well, that's going to work to a certain degree but what about when you're hurt? What about when you're sick? What about when you can't hit the gym six, seven days a week? What about when you don't have the time or the money for these things? What about when your health won't add up? And you say, oh, well, in those times I'm going to turn to meditation. I'm going to be locked in my room in a figure four leg lock saying, hum, hum. I got news for you. My joints don't bend like that. That's not a possibility for me. No matter of alcohol, indifference, exercise, meditation, or self-will, will allow us to overcome what anxiety desires to do in our hearts. And ultimately, what anxiety desires to do in our hearts is to pull our attention and our focus away from God and place it on us and the stuff down here to obscure, to obfuscate our ability to see God and what he is doing. So what Jesus does in this is he systematically moves through and talks about all the various things that we are tempted to be anxious about. And then each one of these, he systematically dismantles. And he says, don't focus on this. Instead, focus on God. So let's walk through this together. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. In what ways? He says, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about uh, your body, what you'll put on. And then he asks this probing question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In essence, Jesus is asking us this question, is your life not more, is it not worth more, is it not more valuable, is there not more to it than whatever this struggle is in front of you? Now, the difficulty in this is that whatever is causing your anxiety, it's right here, right? And so it's this, this screen that we have a very difficult time seeing around. And so for us, from our vantage point, this anxiety is all that we see. And so what Jesus is calling us to do is to recognize that there is, in fact, more. And then from that notion that there is more to life, that life has a greater benefit to you than simply overcoming your anxiety, he begins to move through this. And so the first thing he turns to are the birds. Now, I'm not a bird watcher. I enjoy watching a dove take off, and then I enjoy watching it fall after I shoot. And that's kind of the extent. Quail, I enjoy the same thing. Duck, I mean, I can just think of any number of birds I like to see fly and crash. And then they're tasty later. But he asks this question, or he gives us instruction. He says, look at the birds of the air. And so you can remember seeing birds fly and just seeing them kind of be carefree, Right? And so they're flying around, they're soaring around, they dip down, they're pulling worms, they're eating other birds, and they're, they're doing all these various things. And he tells us, he says, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barn. And so he describes kind of just common work in the first century. And so uh, a common work in the first century would be out in the fields. And so you're you're sowing seed, and then you're going along, and you're gathering it up. And once you've got it gathered up, you're storing it in the barns. Or you're hoping a barn doesn't burn down, and you're hoping it's enough to carry you through the winter. But he looks at the birds, and he says, look at them. Look how carefree they are. They're not sowing. They're not reaping. They're not storing into barns. Look what he says about them. And yet, our heavenly Father feeds them. So he's drawing on this understanding. And so we recognize birds actually do work, right? And so if they just kind of fly around like, this flying thing is the greatest. I'm never going to eat. I'm never going to drink again. What's going to happen? They're going to die. They're going to die. And so birds are actually working, but they're not inordinately captivated by preserving their life. And so what he says in this is God is providing their needs. God is meeting their needs. Now Psalm 147 talks about this to a certain degree. Starting at verse 7, it says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God with the lyre. He covers the heavens with the clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. And so God is all-powerful and he's doing these things that seem incredibly insignificant. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So this is what God is doing. God is moving and creating and sustaining even the birds. Now, the fantastic thing about this is when you read Psalm 147, he goes through and and the Psalms just picks out one particular bird that receives the care of God. And the reason this bird is incredibly instructive is because when we come to Leviticus 11.5, we recognize that the raven is listed among those birds that are unclean, unsuitable for eating, unsuitable to be brought in and, and, and for human consumption. They would make one unholy, unclean before God. So why is this significant? Why am I making such a big deal out of this? I want you to understand the incredible care and provision God has for you. It's not that God looks at it and says, this God, he cares for the quail, this bird that that God used to sustain the Israelites in the Exodus. This God, he sustains even the detestable. Will he not much more care for you? We look around and we see the birds and we wonder, how do they enjoy such carefree life. And so this question comes back to us, are you not of more value than that? In the midst of anxiety, there's this question that rolls in our mind. Does God even care? Is he there? Is he aware of my issues? And does he care about them at all? Jesus in the midst of this so I want you to understand something, that this detestable bird, this bird that is unclean and unfit for consumption, God cares for it. So how would you ever enter into this thought that you who are the coup de gras of God's creative endeavor, you, that God has vested with His image and His likeness, you who He has sent His Son to die for, you. How would you ever begin to think that you are more insignificant than they? See, at the heart of our temptation to be anxious is the refusal to believe and trust that God cares for us and God loves us. We feel unworthy. We feel overburdened. We feel like somehow our issues are insignificant and don't matter to him. So Jesus asks us, he invites us, look at the birds. Do you not matter more than they? So Jesus goes in and he begins to ask this question in verse 27. He says, and, and, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? In essence, he's saying, look, you need to recognize that God cares more for you than he does some insignificant being. And and, and so he asks this question, kind of utility. What good has being anxious ever done for you? Which of you, if you muster all the anxiety of your life, are ever going to add even an hour to the length of your life? And so the answer from this isn't some stodgy guy in the back who says, I squeezed out 57 minutes and 37 seconds. Well, he almost had that 37 seconds. He died and he didn't get there. He was rounding up. The answer, obviously, from God is none of us. Anxiety desires our attention. It desires our focus. And it wants to bring the problems of life up so close that we can focus on nothing else. So we ask this question: What good did it? What good is it? What use is it? And how many of you have had your lives greatly benefited, enhanced? or have added link to them by focusing on anxiety? We would all answer and say, none. So then he turns and he says, look, you've got the birds. You recognize you can't add any time. Your life's not greatly enhanced by focusing on anxiety. But I want you to think of something now. Think of the lilies. And so perhaps the song comes into your mind, the lily of the valley. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like Lady Bird Johnson, flowers on the side of the road that pop up and you have the sign that says, do not mow, right? What happens? It says, do not mow and these flowers pop up and it's like, they are so pretty. You got the Indian paintbrushes, you've got blue bonnets, you've got, don't know what that is, but it's so pretty. And, and, And then all of a sudden what happens? The grass begins to grow up around them and that do not mow sign, you're like, I think there's a sign in there telling me not to mow and I see some color amidst the grass and then somebody mows it all. And every time they mow it, I'm like, that looks so much neater than all that grass with the little flower sprinkled in. That's what Jesus says here. Look at the wildflowers. Look at these things that just kind of pop up on their own. It's not through intensive reseeding, but they are popping up on their own. Consider them how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're doing nothing. They're adding nothing to the equation, they're just happening. So what he says, he compares them to Solomon. He says, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So Jesus takes out and he brings out who would have been in their mind the richest, most fabulous man in history. He had more money, he had more power, he had more influence. And, and, and so he says of them with all his money, with all his power, and with all his influence, he never, ever, ever was able to be arrayed. He never looked as good as these flowers do out there. And they would have said, well, that's really curious. I've never thought about it that way. So then he says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And so what he's talking about, they would take this grass, and once it's kind of mowed down, they would take it, and they would throw it in these clay ovens, and it would burn quickly, and it would heat the clay oven, and then they would put their bread or whatever else they wanted to cook inside it. And so they recognized this stuff only has a utilitarian need, and it goes away so incredibly quickly. Almost the moment you put it in the oven and you subject subjected to heat and fire, it's just gone. But remember how beautiful they were? Remember how amazingly they were arrayed? So we ask this question to our hearts, he says, If God so closed them, God's out there in his uh, creative endeavor. He gave the most amazing palette of colors imaginable to things of no value. Wildflowers. They come up and they're gone. But they're so intricate. They're so beautiful when you look at them. You are desperately loved by our God. He has formed you. He has fashioned you. He has placed in you his image and his likeness. Are you not of much more value than that? Will he not also meet your needs? Is he not also able to overcome your anxiety? We recognize from the question in this, he says, oh, you have little faith. Anxiety in the face of an all-powerful God is a demonstration of a lack of faith and trust in God. Anxiety in the face of an all-powerful God who spoke everything into existence, who sustains everything even now. Anxiety in that is a refusal to trust and believe in God's ability to sustain you, and if it's his will, to bring you to the other side of it. Do you trust him? And do you recognize your worth? Matt Chandler, a pastor over in Dallas, uh, tweeted out a picture of his son dressed out in uh, football pads. He was wearing uh, a Texas Tech emblem, so you have to kind of wonder about that. But But he he texted that out, and then below it he said, if I could believe that God loves me as much as I love this boy, I would explode. He recognizes his love for his son. But most of us struggle to receive and to understand the depths of our great God's love for us. We're unwilling We feel undeserving. We somehow trivialize it and we subject to it our limited understandings and ability to be compassionate, to be gracious, and to be forgiving. Understand this. God loves you. He desperately loves you. And if you would recognize his great love for you, You might not explode, but your life would be absolutely, incredibly transformed. So when we face anxiety or worry, we have to remember the incredible nature of our great God's love for us. That's why Jesus is able to come down here and he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? In essence, don't do this because you have to recognize the incredibly great nature of our awesome God's love for us. John spells it this way in 1 John 4. Starting in verse 9, he says, In this is the love of God was made manifest among us. In essence, we saw God's love for us in this that God sent his only Son into the world. So that we might live through him. And, and, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. See, the amazing nature of God's love for us is not that he looked down and said, Those people are being pretty good. I'm going to visit them with my love. God looked down from heaven and he saw all of us enraptured with our sin instead of enraptured with him. He saw all of us fumbling and falling and doing the very level best that we could to be terrible. And in the midst of this, in the midst of our death, in the midst of our depravity, he sent his son, Jesus, to come and to live this perfectly sinless life. And then at the hands of his creation, to be put to death. There was a penalty and a punishment for our own personal sin, and it was coming due, and we were going to have to pay it. And what Jesus did was he stood in the gap. He stood in this place, and he received the wrath of God poured out on Jesus because you and I could not stand and receive the wrath of God poured out. In the midst of wondering about anxiety, how am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to overcome this medical condition? How am I going to handle this interpersonal conflict? How am I going to make it through one more day? God calls on us not to look at this and say, oh, the glass is half full, but he asks us to look at this and to recognize his great love for us. And in the midst of that, to trust him. Now, what he moves in next is is, is this deal. He says, look, you have to understand something The Gentiles seek after these things. These kind of temporal needs and so these questions of what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? These are things that lost people think about. Anxiety is something that lost people struggle with. They have no rudder. They have no assurance. They have no promise. So this first century audience, these disciples were hearing this. And they're hearing that that lost people, people without the sure promise of Jesus and his provision for them, struggle with these things. And so when we engage in anxiety and we let it lord over our hearts, we're doing the thing that lost people do. Alex Williams, writing with the New York Times, uh, wrote an article on anxiety a few months back. She writes and she says, Scott Stossel, editor of The Atlantic... Who's my age of anxiety helped kick off the anxiety memoir boom three years ago, urged people to pause, not for deep cleansing breaths, but for historical perspective. Every generation going back to Periclean Greece, to the second century Rome, to the Enlightenment, to the Georgians, to the Georgians, and to the Victorians believes itself to be the most anxious age ever. She goes on. She says, that said. Americans in 2017 can make a pretty strong case that they are gold medalists in the Olympics of anxiety. And this is the why. She says there's widespread inequality of wealth and status, general confusion over gender roles and identities, and of course the fear dormant for several decades that ICBMs will rain nuclear fire on American cities. Mr. Sossel said the silver lining, the silver lining for those of us with nervous disorders, is that we can welcome our previously non-neurotic fellow citizens into the anxious fold. Recognize this. The world around you has no reason not to be anxious. It has zero reason not to be fearful. But you do. Christian, where you sit today, as a recipient of the love of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, his blood poured out for you, there is no reason to be anxious because a sovereign, all-powerful God holds your life in his hand. If you trust him, if you trust his love, there is nothing today or tomorrow can bring to change who he is. And on the basis of this, you are always safe. But if you sit here and you are not a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, you have spurned his advances of grace and forgiveness. Nobody's being judgmental. But in the most loving way possibly, I want to tell you this. There is every reason for you to be anxious. There is every reason for you to be burdened with anxiety. Because while tomorrow brings with it its own troubles, the trouble for you and for your soul today is the forgiveness of your sin. God is gracious and slow concerning judgment, but he would bid all of us come and receive the forgiveness afforded us in the cross of Christ. And it is only from that place that there's any hope of being free from anxiety and free from worry. But most importantly, free from the stain and the penalty of sin. Would you pray with me? Father, would you, in this time, would you move in our hearts to show us your goodness, your grace, your mercy. Would you help us to reflect upon the truths of your scripture. God, would you call us to the corrective, instead of being preoccupied, following after and submitting to our anxiety, that we would Seek first your kingdom. We would look to those areas of the world, of our own lives, where we do not see your kingdom and your righteousness reigning, that we would marshal all of our hearts, all of our thoughts, and all of our affections to make that a reality. God, would you move in our midst? Would you stir our hearts help us to be obedient? And would you turn our affections always, forever, only to you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.